podcast listeners and friends. Did you guys know that September 9th in New York City, the National Down Syndrome Society Buddy Walk is going to be happening? And did you know that the lucky few is going to be there? That's right. We are so thrilled about attending this year's National Down Syndrome Society Buddy Walk in the one and only New York City. It's going to be at Central Park. Not only will we be present with a booth selling all of our gear, signing books, come say hey, but our very own Mason Hope R.B. Avis is one of this year's grand marshals. We are so honored and thrilled and excited. If you want to join our team, and we hope you do, you can meet us there in New York City or just become a team member virtually. Help support the National Down Syndrome Society. Head over to NDSS.org and click all the different links get to team the lucky few and join today we cannot wait to join the party in central park in new york city on september 9th and we hope that you will be there too listeners i'm bringing to you another episode full of so much goodness and richness i'm skipping the silly banter at the beginning and going straight into shouting worth and shifting narratives for people with down syndrome welcome to the lucky few podcast Today, I'm really excited to have educators from Brooklyn, New York Elementary School, PS15, joining us. They're here to discuss the impact of meaningful and successful inclusion in our schools, their personal experiences with inclusion in the classroom, and so much more. This is a good one. I'm glad you're here for it. Let's get to it. Welcome, friends, to the Lucky Few Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Able Now. Able Now accounts help eligible individuals and their families save and invest for the future without endangering certain disability benefits that are critical for health and independence. Able Now savings accounts are available to qualified individuals in all 50 states. Learn if you or someone you know is eligible for an Able Now account at ablenow.com. That's ablenow.com. Before we get to my conversation with our guests, I'm going to read another one of your kind reviews. This comes from listener Mary B, who says, I'm so grateful to have found this podcast. There are so many unknowns on this journey with my kiddo with Down syndrome. Having the three of you makes it not as lonely or scary. Thank you for all you do. Mary B, we are so happy to hear that. Thank you for listening and leaving this review. Listener, if you love this podcast, you've not left a review, you can do that right now. Hit pause, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, leave that review and come on back. It means so much to us. All right, listeners, friends. So today I'm here with some incredible educators from Brooklyn, New York. We're joined today by PS15, which is a school, Principal Julie Kavanaugh, along with two of the teachers at that school, Rachel Marks and Megan McPhee. We first learned about this school and their dedication to inclusive education practices in a New York Times article that came out just this last June in 2023 called A Brooklyn School Pioneers New Ways to Teach Children with Disabilities. This is a great read, friends. I hope you can go look it up and read it if you haven't already. Once we read this article, we knew that we needed to have them on to chat further. We're so excited for them to join us today. Here's a little bit about each guest you're about to hear from.
Julie Cavanaugh is the principal of PS15, the Patrick F. Daly Magnet School of the Arts. Julie began her special education teaching career at PS15 in 2001, where she served as an ICT and a 12-1 teacher. I don't know what those things mean, but we're going to find out. And in 2009, under the leadership of Peggy Madison and the Office of Special Programs, she started the ACE, the ACES, ACES program at PS15. ACES, which is a cat academics, careers, and essential skills, is now a citywide program serving children with intellectual and multiple disabilities in the community public school setting. PS15, in partnership with the Office of Special Programs, also hosts a pilot ACES Access ICT program at PS15 for children who qualify for ACEs or have other complex needs. Her goal, however, is not for schools to simply host inclusive programs, but for all schools to be truly inclusive, integrated environments. Yes and amen. Julie's vision for public schooling includes full school-wide integration models so that every child, regardless of their academic, social, or physical needs, has equity and access and high-quality programming at a local community public school. Guided by a liberation and healing justice framework, Julie believes education is the vehicle of cha- to change the world. All right, listeners, we know that in the special ed or in the education world, we love an acronym. So we are going to get to all of those, listeners, if you're thinking that was a lot of information. We will get to all of that clarifying. But I want to move on to our, um, our other guest. So we have Rachel. Rachel is an early childhood special education teacher inspired by her grandmother's advocacy for and dedication to her own son with multiple disabilities. Rachel began her career in 2006 and joined the PS15 community in 2008 where she has experience in both the ICT and 12-1 settings. In 2018, she launched the pilot ACES Access Kindergarten ICT class, where her true passion for education was discovered. She taught the Kindergarten ACES Access ICT program for four years, and in 2022, moved to Lower ACES 12-1-1. Y'all, I can't wait to find out what all this means where she strives to maintain an inclusive experience while meeting the needs of her students in a smaller class size setting. Rachel's excited to take on a coaching role this school year, working closely with ACES Access teachers and families. Rachel's philosophy is best expressed by the quotes, diversity is the mix, inclusion is making the mix work, and see the able, not the label. I love that. And then we have Megan. Megan is a special education teacher who began her career in 2007 at PS15, where she has experience in both the ICT and 12-1 settings. In 2014, Megan started teaching the Lower ACEs 12-1-1 class, where she discovered her true passion for education. She taught the Lower ACEs class for eight years before switching to teach the second grade ACEs Access ICT class. This year, Megan will be teaching the Upper Aces 12-1-1, where she will work with many students that she had in the Lower Aces class. She's excited to take on a coaching role to support Aces families and teachers. One of Megan's main goals is to help support PS15 in creating a truly inclusive environment for all students and listeners. We've got all of these incredible educators with us today. Julie and Megan and Rachel, welcome to the Lucky Few podcast. Thank you. Feel lucky to be here and thank you for having us. That's great. So that was Julie. Megan, you want to say hi? Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Absolutely. And then Rachel. 
Hi, thank you so much for having us. Yes. Thank you so much. All right, friends, I'll have them each say their names again as we're listening, but I feel like we need to start with some clarity here for me and maybe some of our listeners. So Julie, will you tell us what is, what is 12-1, a 12-1 teacher? What does that mean? Yeah. So a 12 to 1 class is a class where all of the children in the class um, would have IEPs. Um, There would be a maximum of 12 children in the class. And then, um, so it's a ratio, right? 12 kids to one teacher. And then our ACEs are actually 12 to 1 to 1. So they come with one teacher and one para as part of the programmatic uh, setup. And then the ICT stands for Integrated Collaborative uh, Co-Teaching. And um, that is a class where, in theory, up to 60% of the children fall on the general education side of the program, and up to 40% of the children fall on um, the special ed side or have an IEP. Um, But with our ACES Access ICT, we actually... um, get funding to shrink that class size. So the ratio generally will stay about the same, um, but we max out the class at 17 students as opposed to 25 or 32, depending on um, the grade. Okay. And of those 17 students, a percentage have an IEP and a percentage don't, right? Correct. Correct. In an ideal scenario, we would have four children, um, up to four children with IEPs and the remaining students um, would be general education. Um, However, in our school, this gets very complicated, which is why my vision around integration and inclusion is so important because schools like ours disproportionately serve children with IEPs um, and have these special programs. It becomes increasingly difficult to stay within those ratios because so many families um, of children who have IEPs seek us out and want Mm -hmm. to come to our school because there aren't, um, you know, similar options elsewhere. So um, our school now is tiptoeing past uh, actually 50% children with IEPs overall. Um, So oftentimes our ratio falls more close to 50-50 or sometimes 60-40 in the other direction. Okay. And tell me a percentage, the ideal percentage, because I'm not great at the math. If there's four kids with an IEP to every, what's the ideal percentage of kids with an IEP? Uh, it would be thir- It would be the ideal programmatic expectation for ACEs Access ICT, which is still in a pilot, and you know we're figuring out in terms of scalability and sustainability. But um, when we created it, when the Office of Special Programs created it with us, it was thirteen mm-hmm. GE students and four um, children who. Uh, you know, have intellectual multiple disability okay. or other complex needs. So four okay. to 13. And then I want to um, know more about the academic career and essential skills, ACEs. What exactly, give us a better idea of what that is and then how it started at, at PS15. Yeah. So um, I think answering those questions combined makes the most sense. So it was in about, I want to say 2009, maybe it was 2008, um, in New York City, in New York City Department of Education, there is uh, actually a separate sort of like district that's carved out, which has been the typical place for children with IEPs or more complex needs where they go to school. And District 75 programs are hosted all throughout the city um, in shared buildings and shared spaces, but are their own separate sort of segregated program. Um, and 
the New York City has gone through several different reorganization processes, and especially once mayoral control came into being in the late 2000s, um, there was a lot of reorganization in how everything looked. Um, so at that time, um, mayoral control was fairly new, and um, there was going to be some reorganization around special education reform. And um, at the time, there were districts and then there were networks, these sort of organizational structures and districts did have some specialized programs that were not connected to District 75 that were out of, um, you know, a sort of centralized program and were just part of the district. But none of that had ever sort of been formalized or supported in any kind of way. And as the central as the uh, Department of Education was becoming more centralized, there was some who believed in the Office of Special Programs that there needed to be, you know, a better handle on um, non-District 75 programs to make sure the quality for our kids was was up to par. So we had one of these smaller classes as uh, at our school that was part of the district that the district fed into. Um, you know, and it was a way of sort of threading the needle where kids wouldn't be completely segregated and separated to District 75 and sent somewhere to some program, but at least would have a community public school in the district that was geographically based. Um, so the Office of Special Programs approached us because our program was known for, you know, being high quality and serving the children well. Um, and I had just taken over that program in my first year. I had moved from working with upper grade students. Um, so they, uh, two wonderful advocates, Lauren Bowman and um, Phyllis Rochester, who worked at the Office of Special Programs at the time, came with this sort of ready-made idea of ACEs, Access, Career, and Essential Skills, which was basically saying, um, you know, our kids... Uh, want to, we want them to work to the standards just as everyone else, you know, every other, they're typically developing peers, have high expectations. Um, but also knowing that what they're held accountable for is the essence of those standards in New York state, we have something called alternate assessment standards. Um, and then also knowing that it's very critical for our kids with intellectual and multiple disability to have the adaptive part of their education and schooling be fully um, integrated in what, you know, they're learning and doing, right? So it's about their independence. It, it's about their, you know, future work opportunities and quality of life and, and all of these things. So um, ACEs, Academics, Career, and Essential Skills was a way of saying the academics are super important and we're going to have high standards, but we're also going to make sure that we are preparing our students for as independent and successful um, as lives as possible, and that we can do that in a community public school setting for all children, um, you know, under an equity framework. So ACES was born that year. Um, and, uh, you know, as mentioned in my bio, it's now there's several um, ACES programs across the city. And the idea was really about being able to break down barriers to show um, this is doable, this is possible, um, and it works, uh, and, you know, we should be welcoming, uh, more children and making public school, community public schools more accessible to all children, um, rather than sorting and separating them. Okay. That all makes a lot of sense. What is the access piece when you say ACEs access? 
so the um, that really has to do with funding in New York City. So that okay. and the access. So ACEs is very specifically for children who qualify for alternate assessment, who have okay. an intellectual or multiple disability, who are going to qualify for alternate as- assessment, who are not necessarily going to take you know, the standardized assessment path to schooling. And in every state that looks a little different, New York, and hopefully this won't be forever, but there's different kinds of diplomas that you can get. There's regents exams that you take in high school. And so the alternate assessment piece is sort of all wrapped up in that. Um, So by the ICT being ACES access, it's partly uh, the access piece has to do with the funding source. Um, So there's additional funding that, that, comes with this kind of program. Um, But it's also, you know, access for all students across the neurodiversity spectrum. So you don't have to qualify for ACEs to be in the ACEs Access ICT. Um, You might have other complex needs um, that make the setting um, a more supportive environment for you. Um, But you know, would still be uh, taking standardized tests, for example, with with other modifications. Okay. And maybe you explain this and I just missed it, but walk us then, ACES, this is what ACES is. And then now it's at PS15. How do you, how did you get there? Yeah. So in, I forget what it was, 2008, 2009, um, these folks from the Office of Special Programs approached us because they wanted to formalize a class program and structure that could then be scalable across the city um, because there was going to be a new special education reform that was going to be implemented um, at the time under the Bloomberg administration. And, um, you know, these sort of programs had formally, uh, formerly just been district-based. And so there wasn't cohesion in terms of the quality or the curriculum or the expectations. Um, And then there was also the danger of them going by the wayside in a system that was becoming more more and more centralized to not sort of protect these programs, right, under that central umbrella. Um, So we were approached by the Office of Special Programs. They requested to have a meeting with us and and presented this idea of of ACEs and wanted our program to grow and be, you know, essentially a model ACEs program. Um, And that's how the program started citywide and how it started at PS15. And shortly after we started what was the 12 to 1 to 1 um, program, the ACEs program, there were a group of parents who really wanted to advocate for a full inclusion, a full ICT version of the program, so to speak, Um, along with folks at the Office of Special Programs as well. And of course, us and my principal at the time. which we were, which we won. And then this was like in, I want to say 2010, maybe 2011. And then right before the school year started, the funding was pulled for the program. And it wouldn't be until about 2016 or 17 that another group of parents came forward really wanting to advocate around um, opening a full ICT section of the program. Um, and uh, along with them, we advocated and met with 
Office of Special Programs folks and were able to get that over the finish line. And actually the first group of students who the founding parents uh, of those students who who fought with this, along with some others, will be uh, graduating fifth grade this year. So we've now scaled the, the program fully in elementary school from kindergarten to fifth grade. Very cool. I, um, I'm wondering, Julie, if you have a moment or a story when you realized inclusion was important to you because you you're in it. It's the, I'm sure all of us here can understand. We know why it's important, but it is such hard work to convince a system that doesn't see that otherwise. Um, so what is it for you about inclusion that makes you want to do this work? Like, do you have a moment or a story like this is, this is why this is important to you? Um, I think there's two little moments that immediately come to mind. Um, prior to starting the ACES program at PS15, I had been a regular ICT inclusion teacher with GE and kids with IEPs, you know, across a general sort of learning disability spectrum. And then spent most of my time in a 12 to 1 class where I was the special education teacher with 12 kids with IEPs, um, but mostly, you know, learning disabilities, processing stuff, ADHD, some behavior, that kind of stuff. Um, and during that time, my class was always the class where whoever, whatever kid you were in the building, like if you needed to go somewhere, if you needed a break, if you needed to escape, if whatever, um, you were coming to my classroom. and. It was also a time when, like, if there were substitute, uh, like, if a teacher was absent, it was hard to get substitutes. So sometimes kids would be split amongst existing classrooms, like, if a teacher was absent back in those days. And all of the kids, GE or special ed, always wanted to come to our classroom. And that came at a time when there was such, there was still so much negative um, perception and thinking, not only amongst adults, but among children as well. And mm -hmm. to see the change from, you know, when I started at PS15, the thoughts and feelings about special education and self-contained um, were so deficit and moving to a time where all the GE kids wanted to be in the 12 to 1 class because that was the place to be. I think it really showed me, you know, this isn't about kids. This is about adults. Kids just want to learn and want to be loved and want to have a good time. They don't really have all these hangups that the adults do. And in fact, we're teaching that to them. Um, mm -hmm. And it's wrong. Um, so that was sort of the first part of it. And, and it's sort of what ultimately led me to moving to, to later starting the ACES program. And then I think, um, I mean, there's countless stories like this over the years, but my first um, year in the ACES class, it was a pretty special group of kids that I, because we were growing the program, I was with them from the time they were kindergarten five until they graduated in fifth grade. So, uh, you know, it was very much like family and I'm still in contact with most of those families. Um, but there was a particular student in the class um, and she, uh, her family is from, from Turkey and they were told when she was born, like, you know, put her in, put her in an institution, like she's never going to be able to do anything. She'll probably never talk. She'll probably never walk. And, you know, she's probably not going to live that long. Um, very, you know, dark sort of outcome, yeah. but her parents were, um, 
you know, these really incredible people who just kept going on and kind of didn't listen. And her first day in the class, they brought her in and she was in a stroller. I'm like, oh, no, we don't do that here. And I leaned down to, to unclip the stroller and they were like, don't you do that? And I was like, oh, it's fine. And it was like the classroom was torn apart in like 10 seconds. It was like a whirling dervish of just energy. She had pretty significant hearing um, loss. So she's also like very loud. Everything is screaming. And um, and she walks around now in crop tops with her makeup on and worked at Trader Joe's this summer as a bagger and was like the star of Trader Joe's. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she's like the mayor of Red Hook. Everyone knows her. She says hi to everybody. And, you know, it's without this opportunity of like being in this inclusive environment in her own community, right across the street from her house, um, you know, she wouldn't be who she is today and who she is, is like amazing and fairly independent. And so outside of the expectations that were set to her, set for her at a very young age. So those are sort of the reasons that inclusion is my love language. Yes. Thank you for sharing that, Julie. Okay, we're going to bring Megan and Rachel into the conversation a little bit. They are the teachers here. I'm Megan and Rachel, we're listening to Julie share, and she's very passionate about this, and she's your leader in all of this at your school. And I'd love for both of you to comment on, well, let's let me do it this way. I would love for each of you first to share a story, like what is it that drove you to be passionate about inclusion. Rachel, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so as I um, mentioned in my bio, I grew up with um, my uncle who had multiple disabilities and just heard stories of his childhood and how hard my grandma had to fight to get him services and to have him be included and all the way through his adulthood where he was like, still always kind of like, you know, he had to, he went from living with her until she, she couldn't physically like be able to take care of him anymore. And it was into a home. Um, and she still, once he was in there, fought to get him into a group home so that he'd be around others and be able to be a part of the community and go to a daily job and seeing all of that and how much she advocated and just how hard it was. And, but also just how important it was really inspired me mm-hmm. from an early age where I just always knew that teaching and um, being a special education teacher was going to be the route that I would take. Um, so I studied early childhood at special education and started off in the in a typical ICT class. Um, from there went to a 12 to one class and the following year after that is when we started the ACEs Access kindergarten inclusion class and that was just like the most special year in like every aspect possible those kids those families that whole entire class just watching them grow together as kindergartners now incoming fifth graders and witnessing all of those beautiful moments and all learning together and seeing true friendships form no matter the um you know, differences in abilities, but there are true solid friendships and those kids love each other and advocate for each other and are there for one another. And Mm. I just, it's, 
eye-opening for anybody that comes into our building, but for anybody that's in our building, it's like, no, this is just the way that it needs to be and the way that it should be. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's just the way that it needs to be. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, thanks for sharing that, Rachel. Megan, what about you? Yeah. Mine was in college. I was going to school for um, social work initially. And my senior year, uh, right before graduating, we had to do a field work and I was placed in a similar to an ACES classroom. It was in Delaware. Um, and I was like, wait a second, this is what I need to do, you know? And so we were in there and this teacher, she was amazing. You know, she fought for these kids to go and eat in the cafeteria with everyone else, even though people were fighting against her. She fought, um, I mean, you know, music class, They she went in with the music teacher and was like, we're going to do this. We're going to make this work. They're going to be with their peers, you know? And I was one of you know, I just was lucky to be placed with her. And so, you know, and I was graduating, I was like, yeah, I, I'm got, I got to go back to school. So then that's why I went right um, to NYU to get my master's in special ed. And then I ended up at PS15, which was kind of, you know, the best place to be. <laughs> so as educators, thank you, Megan, for sharing that. As educators in this environment, what would you say is the role of an administrator in order to achieve success for inclusion? Like how important is, is admin when it comes to achieving success? Well, I think that, you know, administration is obviously like very, like the most critical part because they're helping us with the planning, the supporting, the um, implementing and having that support like is what makes the program possible knowing that like the door is always open to walk in and bounce some ideas off of um knowing that like we have the flexibility to change what might you know what's happening in our room if it looks a little differently than what's happening in another room across the grade like knowing that that's okay um asking seeking i think i said this already but seeking for and asking advice making sure that you know, I see inclusion is existing just beyond an ICT class, that it's a school-wide model. Like Megan said, that mm-hmm. like our kids are all having lunch together. They're all playing in recess together. So even if our kids are still needing the main setting of their day to be in a smaller class, they're still included in the whole school. They're still going to whole school-wide events. They're getting times with partner classes where they're going into their rooms and having partner buddies with other general education students so that they're around typically developing peers, um, having gym classes together. So making sure that while, you know, that inclusion is happening school-wide, not just class-wide. It's the culture of the whole school environment. Mm-hmm. And that that's um, yeah. really just that the whole school is trained in inclusive practices, uh, not just each inclusion classroom yeah do you think so there's this idea that in certain schools and this is kind of how it is in our schools there's like the inclusion classroom right so you're talking about how the admin is making sure the principal whoever's in charge at this in charge of the school is implementing inclusion school-wide do you think that inclusion can happen in a school where there's just an inclusion classroom right like that's the class that's the inclusion class which means that the other classes are I mean, what's the opposite of inclusion? Ex- the exclusion classrooms. <laughs> um, do you think it's possible for inclusion to happen in an inclusion classroom for students if inclusion is not school-wide? Well, what I was going to say is I think um, 
you know, when we started this work, um, when we started the ACES program, you know, particularly for, we, we always had as a school an ICT class on every grade, right? For, like I said, learning disabilities, things like that, as well as a 12 to 1, um, four of those in the building. But this was the first, you know, step uh, further, right, into the special education box, so to speak, from the perspective of everyone in the community and all of that. And um, so, you know, in the beginning, I had to do the things that Megan talked about in terms of, um, you know, the mentor teacher that she had. Right. I had to fight for my kids to go to lunch and recess. And then when they were at lunch, I had to fight for them and explain to the lunch staff why my para carried a Costco sized bottle of ketchup in her bag because the cafeteria always ran out of ketchup and my kids weren't going to eat without ketchup and they're freaking out because it's not fair. The other kids don't have ketchup. And I'm like, no, this is equity. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of times what happens is you get the program first and then you have to do the education and the legwork. So I'm loath to say it's not possible of course, like in principle, right, the idea of of just having just having mm. inclusive classes as opposed to a school being an inclusive place is not true inclusion, right? That's not possible in the sense of like, that's not real inclusion or what I would consider to be integration. But I also am loath to say it in that sort of like deficit way, because what has to happen in most places is... Mm those barriers have to be broken down and you have to show that it's possible and you have to put forth the practice and and do things side by side to make it work and to make it sustainable and to grow and for people to um, embrace it and be comfortable. You know, I'm not big on like tiptoeing to make other people comfortable, but at the same time, if they're not, then it's not going to be successful. And change for folks is scary and the unknown is scary. And unfortunately, we live in a society where, um, you know, mm -hmm. having all of our children across a beautiful spectrum, yeah. living and loving and learning together can be a scary thing for a lot of parents. And, um, you know, you have to, and I think it's why leadership is so important, you have to be able to put the programs mm -hmm. and practices in place and also do that really deep equity work and that learning work together um, so that everybody buys in and has a common language and a common vision about what inclusion and integration really is. Yeah. And this, you may have just answered this question, Julie, but if you were for administrators who are listening or even for we have a lot of educators who listen and a lot of, um, I think we're mostly parents listening, but we do have a lot of educators who listen to the podcast. And if they're wanting to see successful inclusion in their schools, what advice would you give an administrator, um, maybe like some tangibles, these, or an overall idea or ethos around what it is um, and how to make it work in a school-wide yeah, I mean, you know, while we're saying like administration and the principal is so important, I mean, yes, in terms of like nothing's going to happen systems or structure, structures wise without that leadership, right? The buy-in's not going to happen. But really the most important part is is your staff. You know, I'm very fortunate to have just unbelievably dedicated teachers and power professionals. That's what teaching assistants or school, aid, school aides are called in um, New York City public schools. Um, 
you know, who are just unbelievably dedicated to our kids, our families, and to this work. Um, and that's the first thing. You, like, you have to have a team in place. And in the beginning, mm-hmm. it might just be a couple of people who have this shared vision, and then it grows from there. But there has to be a team in place that has some foundation to being, to being committed to um, educational pioneers, really, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and seeing this work um, you know, as a political act um, and as a moral act. And then I think from there, you know, armed with that team, the work of an administrator is really twofold, right? It's all about like making sure that you have all of the resources and the access for your staff and your families to do all the magic that they're going to do and be supportive of them. Um, and, you know, it's also the, um, the intensive um, professional continuous learning. And I'm not talking about professional development. I'm talking about, you know, communities of professional learning and collaboration where we know every child well, where we know every family well, that piece, but also the diversity, equity, inclusion, learning, peace, and work. Um, We all are colonized in so many ways in our minds um, growing up in our country. And um, I think schools and administrators have to be really comfortable being uncomfortable and pushing other people to be uncomfortable in order to really do the decolonizing work that needs to happen to be open to a truly inclusive and and integrated environment. And not just for kids on a neurodiversity spectrum, right? Race, Mm -hmm. ethnicity, religion, gender, sexuality, like all of these, there's intersectionality in all of this. Um, but often the neurodiversity part of the conversation of that work is left for last. And it's so important that everyone in the community, parents, the kids and the staff are anchored in that active collective work together. Oh, yes. And amen. Gosh, Julie for president. Um, that's so brilliant. So brilliant. Megan, I'm going to throw a similar question to you when it comes to educators. Um, I know that where we're at, in working with educators who aren't in a school that is necessarily practicing inclusion and we're walking in with our kids with Down syndrome saying, no, this is what we're going to do and it's going to be hard and good and here's the why. And then having educated, certain educators are like, okay, let's, I'm scared and let's go. And other educators are just like dig their heels in. Um, what advice do you have for educators who are looking to implement inclusion in their schools? Like they're the educator who's like, come on, let's go. Uh, what advice would you have for them? Um, yeah, you know, it's probably the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's the most rewarding, you know, at the same mm. time. Um, you know, it's it could be messy a little bit. Uh, you're probably going to make a lot of mistakes, but I feel like you learn from those mistakes. And I feel like a lot as, you know, as I get older and just in life and in at school, it's like you just a lot of reflection and figuring out, learning from those mistakes, realizing it's okay to make mistakes, right? And really taking um, those to for your next step. Um, I think, you know, it's, I don't know, it's the most rewarding thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> and it's worth every second. Um, I, I don't know if that was good or not, but yeah. <laughs> that made sense. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Rachel, would you add, would you want to add anything or what would you say to educators who are wanting to implement inclusion in their schools? 
Yeah, I would just um, also say to keep the team effort in mind and like really, you know, when making decisions or on some of your practices or specific students, like involve everyone that works with the student, like involve the therapists, the paraprofessionals, the families, uh, make sure that everybody's on board with everything so that we're best meeting the needs of our kids. Um, also seeking out like professional development and learning opportunities so that you can be the best teacher for those kids. Um, we've done like a lot of work around um, literacy for kiddos with complex communication needs and um, you know, a series in like teaching writing. So it sometimes the teaching looks different from mm -hmm. anything that you've ever done before. And like that can be hard and scary and intimidating. So finding um, pathways to learning and then creating like that community to study like with your school and have be willing to share and have an open door for your colleagues um, and know that what worked today might not work tomorrow and that's okay. And we're gonna buckle up and try again. And really to just take time to celebrate every victory, no matter how big or how small it is, like our victories are victories and everything should be just celebrated and then enjoy the kids and love on them. I love it. I love it. It's such good advice. Advice. All three of you have touched on like collaboration and how important it sounds like it's imperative to making this work collaboration with staff and educators, support staff and parents. Can any one of you can take this? Can you talk about what that looks like in practice at your school? And I would say as a parent, I would love to know, like, if I were to come to your school with my kid, what does that look like to be collaborative with me? I mean, I could give two quick examples. Um, you know, from an administrative perspective, yeah, one of the things that I think is really important in terms of fostering collaboration is professional learning communities. And so we set that up at our school. We have grade teams, we have ACES teams, and then we also have an equity PLC once a month. Um, and equity PLCs is something that we've been doing for several years um, now. And so equity PLCs are a time when folks gather in teams and um, have like a prepared series or work or, you know, a book that they're reading or a video they're watching, whatever. And we've done them differently every year. Sometimes they're more like affinity cohorts, like everybody in this group is going to focus on neurodiversity. Everybody in this group is going to focus on sexual identity. And then we do kind of share affairs throughout the year with each other's, with each other. And then sometimes um, professional learning communities are, we're all learning the same thing about all these different areas of, of equity and diversity, but um, maybe at a different entry point, for example, right? Depending on how long we've been at the school um, or something mm -hmm. like that. So the, and those are really important because they're really a space to focus on this area of the work that never gets prioritized and there's never enough time to do. And I think, you know, true inclusion and integration has to be very intentional. And in order for something to be very intentional, yeah. you have to be armed with a common language, um, a vocabulary, um, goals, and a belief system. And how do you make that happen, you know, with a collection of like 160 employees who all have very different backgrounds and are coming to the table, you know, with their own stuff, right? So professional learning communities, grade teams, mm -hmm. my teachers get an extra prep every week just to meet together um, as a grade team a couple times a month. And then also 
um, in this case, as our ACEs, ACEs access team. Um, so they can really share best practices and support each other and also share the knowledge that they have of children and families, you know, because our families move up. And like a specific example in that regard, like what would that look like for for kids and families at the school? Um, the first thing is like we're super accessible for, for all of our families. Everyone has my cell phone number as principal, um, but particularly our ACEs and Access families. We very explicitly acknowledge we get it. You know, your kid is maybe is nonverbal or isn't going to yeah. come home and speak to you in, you know, a paragraph, right? Um, and that's scary and you need to know what's going on and you need to feel comfortable and to be able to ask any question, you know, so having open lines of communication, all of that, but also the collaborative way in which we share information with each other, whether that's, you know, parent to teacher, para, whatever, right? Um, so like a granular example of that is we have a student um, in the ACES Access ICT who um, does, is, does not qualify for alternate assessment, but uh, has some very complex needs, including a um, neurogenetic vision disorder um, that requires very, very heavily and modified everything, including the classroom environment. And mm -hmm. I got a note from the parent at the end of the first day of school last year, and the child actually last year was going into Megan McPhee's class coming up from the previous first grade team. And she was in tears because she was like, I went in thinking I was going to have to advocate and teach the new team all these mm -hmm. things that needed to be done. And I walked in and everything was done. His special table was there. His special slant board is there. The color coding was there. The Hegarty alphabet cards were already put into the two options. And uh, she was like, I can't believe it. You know, I've spent my whole life having to fight for every little thing. And your staff just did this like it was magic for the first day of school without me saying a word. Um, and that's who our who our staff is and why collaboration is so important. So our our parents feel very open, um, you know, an open door policy um, and our teachers, you know, are very intentional, both on a philosophical, pedagogical learning you know, sort of track, but also in the daily practicalities of making sure every kid is well taken care of. That, as you said, that made me tear up because I can't even imagine, I can imagine only what that's like as a parent. And our big thing always at the end of every school year is we have to be ready for next year. Like we, they can't, we can't get ready the first two weeks of school. It's too late. It's too late. And it's, I know it's never too late, but gosh, we're setting our kid up for failure if they're not ready day one. Megan, how did you do that? How do you, how are you ready the first day? I'm serious. Like, tell me logistically what's happening. <laughs> um, well, I talked, you know, I, can, I, I guess we're really lucky at PS15 because it's just everyone is so willing to work with each other and communicate. And, you know, I had talked to his previous year teachers. Um, we had a meeting with um, his para and his parents were there and his vision teacher and everyone kind of shows up and get, you know says what works and what he needed you know to feel successful on the first day so you know when everyone's on the same page in that sense it makes things a lot easier to do you know yeah it sounds um what I'm hearing is there's just a lot of trust and with everybody everybody trusts everybody and I have found in a, in a school district where inclusion is not the go-to, um, 
it, we joke, but it's not funny that I'm like, quote, that parent. I'm like that mom. And I just always have a feeling that everyone is meeting ahead of time before our meetings to talk about me. <laughs> and that's probably things I can work out in therapy. But I think there's a little bit of truth to that of like, I, I'm that mom. And now we have to appease Heather Avis because she's come in with her fist up. And there isn't, we, sometimes we have teacher's phone numbers. Most of the time we don't. We'll ask for a parent's phone number because they're with our kid constantly all day. And then it's like, well, you have to communicate to the principal, to the teacher. And I, and I understand safeguards like that for staff. But at the end of the day, it kind of feels like, I don't think that anybody trusts me. And I don't know how to trust you if you don't trust me. And my kid is the collateral here, right? So it sounds like you, like trust is so important within that collaborative model. I always say as a principal, trust and transparency are my brand. And I mm. think transparency is what breeds trust. Yeah. Um and I think, you know, the reason transparency is so important, particularly when we're talking about a neurodiversity spectrum is, you know, humans are very fear-based. And as a society, we have sort of like structured all of our systems to sort of be the result of that fear and also prey on that fear, right? Mm -hmm. And certainly mm -hmm. capitalism has its role in that too, right? Like who can we other and then it's their fault. Yep. Why, why I don't have like all the things I want. It, very simplistically, but that's the big picture. And, you know, so I think, yes, there's trust, but but more yet, and, and that's at a foundation, but that comes from very intentional work on the part of leadership and also on the part of our staff to just be very open and transparent and have a culture of learning that's, you know, asset-minded. Like Megan was saying, like, I'm going to try something and it's a safe space to try that. And if it doesn't work, okay, we try another thing. And if it does, great. Or I learned something along the way and making the mistake and it's not working. And I take that and then I make it better, you know, the next day or the next month or the next year. So it's really important for school leaders to be able to create a culture in which, you know, transparency is just the norm yeah. and risk-taking um, and having that safe environment to just really focus on every kid's needs is really important. And then also for parents to enter the space in that with that same transparency and trust mm -hmm. as well. I think a lot of times these relationships and scenarios become adversarial because, you know, maybe sometimes a parent is demanding or asking for something that the school, the administration, the teachers have never done before. Right. And and what really is at the, at the heart of their of that conflict um, is a fear on the educator's part of, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this good enough. All these other parents might complain. We've never done this before. You know, it's, it's, it's a big risk for, for administrators and teachers to uh, be educational pioneers, you know, in the context of inclusion and integration. Um, yeah. But as has been said, it's so worth it. So worth it. And I, the, our most successful year I've had with my, my oldest daughter, Macy, was fifth grade. And we had done, laid some foundation at a new school in fourth grade. But in fifth grade, I'm one that I just default to transparency. And I think that the educational system is not built on transparency systemically. And so, and I think especially in the, in the special education space, and I come to all my IEPs, I'm just a very transparent person. I think it freaks people out, but it, it, you can call it all out like, Hey, this is, 
everybody here, I feel like there's secrets. Can we not have secrets? Like you can call stuff out and it you lay it on the table and then you see progress. But this particular teacher with Macy or my oldest daughter, she had never had a student with a disability like Macy in her class. She's been teaching 30 years. And she, and at the beginning of the year, she said to me, I'm really afraid. And because we could start there, I'm like, yes, me too. We've never done this. And it just laid this like openness of transparency of this is so hard. And I actually, this actually feels unfair. And, but it, it, for me as a parent, that didn't feel offensive. It felt refreshing because I knew what she was thinking. And then, and then I knew what she was going to need, you know, like, then it's like, oh, you're not afraid of my kid. No, you're going to love her. We know where we're starting at here and we're starting from, from afraid and that's an okay place to start, but it's not if you don't admit it, right? Because then you start to build on top of it and, and then that's just a shaky foundation that will ultimately crumble. But that, I love, I love what you're saying about, about all that transparency and trust and collaboration and all of that. So, okay, we need to wrap this up because we're already almost 50 minutes in and I feel like we could talk about this for so long. Because what you're doing, honestly, is pioneering something that um, it's working. It works, right? So right now, my, both my seventh grader and my ninth grader got into a local charter school that there's a lottery system. It's, it's a lot of detail to it, but it, we essentially won the lottery. And my daughter with Down syndrome is the second person in 20 years with Down syndrome to go to this school. So God bless us. But what I've said to that principal, the head of schools is, oh, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. It's being done. Like you can look at models that are doing it, right? And and you guys would be that. And granted, New York education is different than California. But at the end of the day, I think nationwide education is education. So all of that to say, are there, for people listening who are like, yes, I want more of this. How do I get this? What are some resources that you can point people to? that can help to build what it is that you guys are building and creating? You know, it's a, it's a hard question because I think this work is pioneering work. And yes, there's research and books and examples, but I am, I've now at an age in life where I'm reflective of my own self. And it's like, oh, I'm like really a humanist. Like that's how I learn, like, you know, sociology. And I think for me, um, one to your point, which you you said in the question, which is kids are kids and learning is learning. And if you learn how to do that well as an educator, um, if you have the belief that one of my favorite signs that I have in my office is, you know, every child, it should be the birthright of every child to know what it's like to light up a room. Mm. Like that's my educational philosophy in a nutshell. And I think that that's great for everybody. Right. Um and then beyond that, I think it's really, for me, how, how we've developed this program and the work that we do every day is the humanist side of from the time that I was a very little girl, you know, playing with kids with disabilities, um, you know, babysitting kids with disabilities. I worked for the ARC and did respite care for years. I worked at the Emotional Behavioral Health Hospital all through college, you know, on and on and on and positioning yourself to live this this life where you're, you know, absorbing all of these case studies, so to speak. And like one of the most transformative books that I ever read was this book, Fighting for Darla, which was a case study of a, of a young woman with autism who got pregnant, 
um, and how her family like navigated this really arcane system to fight for her to have the life that she deserved, you know? Um, so for me, that's what I draw from in the educational space. There's really nothing super different um, in terms of like what I'm consuming for our ACEs access population as opposed to the general education population, with the exception of some of like the very technical nuts and bolts PDs, which maybe Rachel, you'd want to talk more about because you've really helped to, to bring some of those in. It is important to like develop technical skill for sure. Um, but it's not like any one thing has been what I have found, um, you know, that I'd be like, read this, you know, study this. Yeah. Um, but I do want to read that book because I haven't and we will link to it. Have you read uh, any of you? Have you guys read Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree? Okay. Put it on your list. That's my number one go-to. I mean, it's unreal. It's just one of my favorite books of all time. Um, and incredibly transformative. It's about 10 different case studies in 10 different categories of marginalized people. So a lot of people with disabilities and it's phenomenal. Okay. Rachel, talk to us about the, did you say PD, professional development? Yeah. So um, we've had some great opportunities to go to some professional developments that are really like targeted towards the populations that we're teaching. I went to um, a few years ago, it was a two-day conference um, for teaching literacy skills for kiddos with complex communication needs um, who are largely nonverbal um, with uh, perhaps like also some physical delays so like can't difficulties with writing um, and just really getting the a breakdown of how to build those skills in our kids and how to teach that. Um, a lot of our kids, like I just mentioned, are nonverbal. So we went to an assistive technology um, professional development a few years ago just to hear about other ways that we can reach our kids and make um, it more accessible for them to be able to participate in the class. So to have different, you know, most of them do have an iPad or a talker as they refer to it as, but to have like other, um, like the like the Big Macs to be able to, you know, answer questions with the class or participate in a read aloud with repetitive phrasing. Um, we've had, I mentioned the professional development um, for teaching uh, the writing continuum to some of our to kids um, in our population. And all of that really just like the nuts and bolts of like how we're going to teach on a level on the to meet the levels of where our kids are um, has been super, super helpful um, in our practice. That's great. Thank you. Megan, do you have any recommendations of a resource, even like a book or a podcast or a voice that you listen to a person, a thought leader? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> No, I don't have a book or a podcast. Um, I, I feel like the resources, our resources are, are each other, you know, and going and seeing yeah. other um, classes and schools that are trying to, that are doing similar things and learning that way. Um, but yeah, I don't have a specific book or podcast or something. Book. Well, that's yeah. super helpful though. I think that you can't oh, um, understate how important it is to listen to each other and use each other as resources. So good. All right. Julie, Megan, Rachel, first of all, I want my kids to be at your school, but it sounds like you have too many kids with IEPs. Also, I live in California. Um, 
which is why schools need to move yes. to full integration models because you know it's one of the things I wanted to say you know to, to especially to parents listening to this you know to really yeah. fight for this uh, in your community in your school district you know less than five percent of the population in the United States falls under like you know this complex needs sort of umbrella. 20% or less generally, you know, students need IEPs broadly. And, you know, if every local community public school was just a truly inclusive environment um, where learning and programs were truly integrated, then those very small percentage of ch actual children could be very, you know, evenly distributed amongst our community public schools. And I really believe that every single child should have access to, especially in elementary school, a local public community school that they can walk or wheel to. And um, there's no reason that we can't do that when we look at the numbers. And hopefully what we're showing is that it is scalable, it is sustainable. And if everyone did it, then we wouldn't be at over, you know, 50% of our students with IEPs now, which would be better for everybody. So do you guys have people come in and observe yeah. from other states or districts or things? Okay. They can come and see what you guys are doing and ask questions and stuff. Are you writing up a case study? Is there like a doctorate happening? <laughs> Not yet, but we, it's something that I'm hopeful for in the future. We actually, um, Teachers College at Columbia is, um, we are now partners with them for their uh, field work and student uh, teaching placements because they added a dual certification extension and under their special ed program. I don't love the title, which I've told them, so I'm not throwing them under the bus, um, which is uh, students with severe disabilities. And so there are teachers who go through that certification program, do their field work and their student teaching um, largely at our school and our ACES access program. So I am hoping that that is going to lead to, um, you know, uh, more research based long term case study work um, at PS15. Cool. I'm hopeful for that, too. Um, so grateful for everything you shared with us today. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for investing in education the way that you are. And I just am a big fan and all the way over here on the West Coast cheering all of you on. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. I hope all of your kiddos have a good start to the school year. Me too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a break and be right back. This episode is sponsored by Able Now. For too long, Americans with disabilities weren't able to save money for the future. Advocates fought hard to change this, resulting in a grassroots movement that changed the law so people with disabilities can achieve a better life experience. Today, Able Now accounts help eligible individuals and their families save and invest without endangering certain disability benefits that are critical for health and independence. There is no enrollment fee no minimum amount required to start your savings, and anyone can contribute to the account to help make dreams a reality. Save for today's needs or for future goals. Funds in your AbleNow account can pay for a variety of qualified disability expenses related to health, independence, and quality of life. AbleNow accounts are available to qualified individuals in all 50 states. Learn if you or someone you know is eligible for an AbleNow account at ablenow.com. That's ablenow.com.
right, we're wrapping this one up. Friends, I hope you got as much out of it as I did. I think I'm going to go back and listen to this one a couple of times. If you are headed back to school and you would like to head back in some narrative shifting gear, head over to theluckyfew.co. That's theluckyfew.co. We have a special discount code for listeners. You can use the word podcast, podcast to get 10% off all of your narrative shifting gear over at theluckyfew.co. We want to thank our friends over at Able Now for sponsoring this episode. Thank you, Josh Avis, for editing and Ashley Fracolossi for producing it. If you like the episode, share it with friends and family. Send this one over to some school administrators, to your child's teacher, to your superintendent. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can head to theluckyfewpodcast.com for show notes and links to anything that we talked about today. And make sure you're following us over on social media and Instagram at the lucky few pod. And Hey, listener headed back to school, you, or maybe you're already back in school. Either way, we know that you are slaying it. We are here cheering you on and we love you so much. Can't wait to be together next week until then include on. Include on.